Um, Daniel starts like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, it's just a few verses that give a little bit of introduction to the book. But the problem that we have is sometimes we read verses like this and we just think, okay, great, and then keep going. But what this, these first few verses is describing is an absolutely cataclysmically massive event in the history of the Jewish people and for Daniel in particular. So we need to not skip past these verses. We need to try and let them hit us with a certain degree of force. Um, and you know how there, was some, there are some points in our lives where you just kind of feel like things change forever? You know those points where maybe where you get engaged or whatever, or that changes some things. Um, but, uh, oh gosh, keep moving. Um, but then there are events that globally change the course of history a little bit. And I think one of them happened relatively recently, uh, no, not that recently, um, but uh, here, um, when the World Trade Center towers were hit. Now, can anyone remember where you were on the day that the World Trade Center towers were hit? Can anyone remember where you were the next day? <laughs> one or two. <laughs> Do you remember when, when you heard it? I, I, went, I came home from school, and I think I came home fairly promptly from school and put the TV on fairly promptly, because uh, that's what I did. And I remember the kind of the shock as this, the, what filled the TV screen on seemingly, I think, every channel was this enormous towering black smoke coming from these towers. And I remember watching as the second plane hit, and then over time as the towers fell. And over the next kind of hour or hour and a half, you, you kind of, you, I remember seeing the commentators and the news reporters come to terms with what had just happened. Like when the first one hit and it was kind of, is it an accident? What's going on here? And then the second one hits and then they start to fall and people start to realize, oh my gosh, this is going to change everything. Like, this event is going to be one of those events that ch changes how we see ourselves, that changes how we see our world, that changes how we see the other, that changes how we see, in our case, the West and the Muslim world and all that dynamic. And sure enough, now it's become just like a thing, hasn't it? 9-11. You can just say that anywhere, and people know exactly what you mean, exactly what day you're talking about. Now, I would say... The thing that just got described in Daniel 1, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks the people of Judah, and the king is handed over to him, and Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the items from the temple, that in Daniel's mind is like a massive version of 9-11. Like the degree to which we felt like that shaped the West, they felt like this shaped them massively more. It's a cataclysmic event. Um, that we can only really understand when we've got a little bit of context. But the exile changed everything for the people of Judah. What we're hearing about is actually the second of two exiles. And I appreciate that for some of us, our Judeo history is a little bit shaky. So we're going to spend a little bit of time now doing a kind of mini history lesson of the, brief, uh, of the people of Israel, which I've called a brief history. Uh, now... Disclaimer in advance, I'm going to do a shocking job of this. 
um, because it's impossible to pack it all into a minute and a half and get all the focuses and all the nuances. Uh, but just follow me briefly. You ready for some cartoons? Great. This is Abraham. <laughs> now, um, and Abraham is, as you can probably tell, in the land of Israel. Um, so the, uh, the big uh, circle at the bottom there, the big blue blob, is the Dead Sea. The top is uh, the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs between the two. And on the left, uh, the black line, unhelpfully drawn, is actually the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I'm sure you can all tell now. You're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Great. Uh, so that's, uh, roughly speaking, uh, the ancient land of Israel. Now, Abraham is called to the land of Israel by God, right? In Genesis 12, I think. And God says to him, listen, Abraham, I want to change the world and I want to do it through you, through a people. So I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So the idea is that Abraham, by living life with God, blesses the rest of the world. Now, as some of you know, Abraham had some kids. Not four. There's just not room for everyone in this land. It's quite small. So uh, he had lots of kids. Um, And then over time, as you remember, one of them was called... Oh, wait, no. A few generations down, we get Joseph and the people of Israel go and live in Egypt in a famine. Do you remember? Uh, Those stories do link together, Um, but just not as quick as I just told them. Actually took quite a long time. So 70 people go down and live in Egypt, but then what happens in Egypt? They get enslaved. Remember? And they spend 400 years in the land of Egypt. And then by this time, they've multiplied loads. There's tons of them. And God says, I'm going to bring them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I'm going to bring them back into the land that's theirs. And so the next 40 years, um, God rescues them from Egypt, brings them out into the desert, gives them the law and the covenant. And they live with God, eating manna in the desert for 40 years. And then uh, Joshua um, leads them over the Jordan and back into the land. Yay! Right? And they start to take over the land. They don't do that much of a great job, in my opinion, but they start to take over the land um, and are settled again. Woohoo! Great. Now, over time, they think it would be a lovely idea if not just living for God and living in community, but it would be a lovely idea if we start to look a little bit more like the people around us. So, uh, we would like a king. So they get a king. Ta-da! Yeah. Someone give me an award for my artistic talents afterwards. Um, That's the king. And who was the first king? Very good. Who was the second king? Very good. Who was Solomon? Oh, no. Who was the king after? Oh, wait. Uh, Gave it away. Classic. Now, uh, first couple of kings happen. Saul's a bit of a disaster. David's uh, great and then a bit of a disaster. uh, And then great again. Um, But then David sets up the plans for Solomon to build a thing called the temple. Yay! So what's the temple? To worship God. It's the house where God's presence was. So up until now, God had 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 a tabernacle, which was the place that symbolized his presence. And the tabernacle was in the center of the the people of Israel. Um, And then the center, and then that would kind of... uh, so then worship of God is at the center of their lives together. Do you get me? Uh, Solomon's like, it would be lovely to put this in uh, stone. So he builds an impressive and massive temple. He furnishes it with gold. He, um, everything in it, you go in, it's like a big gold city. It's amazing. Um, and it, all the furnishings are gold. And all the knives and forks are gold. And everything's wonderful and splendid. Um, 
And uh, that's great. So now we have a monarchy and a temple. Got it? And so over time now, this starts to define the people of Israel, except the whole thing doesn't last very long because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is a bit of a nutter. So a uh, bunch of people... Re- How are you doing, by the way? Is this, is this helpful? Well, we'll soon see. Um, so uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, manages to split the kingdom in half. So rather than having one kingdom with one monarchy and one centralized place of worship, we now have Rehoboam ruling Judah and is it oh, Judah and Benjamin and the half-tribe of Manasseh. In the south here, those are the two guys uh, with, the, with the temple. And then a kind of dividing line. And then the rest of the kind of ten tribes of Israel are called the Northern Kingdom. Or in your Bibles, from now on, they're just called Israel. And the Southern people are called Judah. That's why it's so confusing when you tried reading the books of Kings and Chronicles. And it's like, well, so-and-so was king of Israel, so-and-so was king of Judah. And you're like, I'm pretty sure they were the same place. But uh, they're not at this stage. So you've got the Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, right? Who has the temple? The southern kingdom, Judah. Very good. So what the northern kingdom, what do the northern kingdom do for worship? Well, they think, we can't go all the way down there to worship. So we're going to set up our own stuff, maybe our own gods, maybe, uh, maybe a couple of golden calves, because that worked out really well last time we tried it. Um, so they set up new ways of worship, new places of worship up north. And over time, just king after king after king after king after king of the northern kingdom don't serve God, do serve idols, don't pursue justice, do try and get rich quick, don't listen to what the prophets say or anything. So after a couple of hundred years, God says, do you know what, I've had it with the northern kingdom, and Assyria come and wipe them off the face of the earth. This is exile number one. So what you now have is a tiny shadow of the people of Israel left in the land, the people of Judah. Now the question is, will they listen to the warning? Because God's got a purpose to save the world through this people. And so far, it's not looking that good. (laughs) How are they going to respond? How are the southern kingdom going to live up to the expectations that God has for them now that the northern kingdom has been deported? So the answer, not really that well. (laughs) The southern kingdom, though they have a few good kings, the trajectory is the same. And though they have the temple and they have worship, they forget God. And they forget the value of his law um, that he gave to them. And they forget what right living and justice looks like. And over time, they just become more and more generic, less and less influential to the peoples around them. And God says, do you know what? I've had it up to here with you guys. We're going to do this differently. And so he brings in, well, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon and attacks. And this is what we just read, isn't it? In the third year of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's in the east, came and attacked. And actually, this happened a few times. So Babylon come and attack, and they take away some people. Daniel was in the first batch. Um, and some items from the temple. Now, just, just imagine that. Some of these items from the temple, from the place of worship of God, are taken and put in this other guy's temple, as if they're just a conquest, as if they're nothing. 
Think of how that would impact these people. And then over time, there's another king, and then there's another king in Judah. Um, And these are now puppet kings, but they keep rebelling against Babylon. And so eventually, Babylon come and destroy everything. Nebuchadnezzar sends in his army, and they besiege Jerusalem, the holy city. And And they take down the walls of the city, and they set fire to the temple of God. Now, that's not just an unfortunate event. That is the breaking down of the core of the identity of this people. It's impossible. It's impossible to overplay how big of a deal it was that Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple in the minds of these Jewish guys in in the 6th century BC. It's impossible to overstate what a trauma this would have been. And then um, this happens as well. The commander of the guard of Babylon took as prisoners Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank. What realm of life is that? It's the faith, of, the faith part of life, right? So he takes away some of the religious leaders uh, and the three doorkeepers, because why not? They're there, they're loitering. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men, what part of life is that? It's the security, the military. So he takes the leaders of the military and five royal advisors. What part of life is that? Government, politics. He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land. So the person who can organize people. And 60 of the conscripts who were found in the city because they still know how to fight. Nebuzaradan, the commander took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. Ready? There at Ribla, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So now what we've got is the people of Israel who were cut in half by the first exile. Now Babylon have come and invaded and their place of worship is gone. The walls of Jerusalem is gone. The political leaders are gone. The king, who was king at the time, tries to escape, gets as far as the Dead Sea, and Babylon catches up with him. And they take him and his sons to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And in front of of Nebuchadnezzar, they make the king watch while they execute every one of his sons And it's the last thing he sees, because then they pluck his eyes out. So now Judah has no political leaders. They've got no army. They've got no strength. They have no temple, which became identified as the place of the presence of God. So where's God now? And then Nebuchadnezzar brings these these few guys who are young, because young people are easier to change. (laughs) No offense. And he takes them into his, into his service. And he says, okay, we're just going to erase every last bit of what it means to be a Jew in your life. You're going to eat my food. You're going to learn to speak my language. You're going to learn my history, my culture, and forget your own. Because Nebuchadnezzar's aim is to completely erase the memory of this people. Welcome to Daniel. 
Now, do you see this raises massive questions? This isn't just Daniel's in the court of a foreign king. This is Daniel is a guy who has lost everything. He was a noble, so probably a lot of his family were killed because of their positions of power. He's serving Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, when I was a kid, we did, uh, I remember a series uh, looking at Daniel, and we called him King Neb the Big Head, which is kind of a cute name. But actually, when you think about who he is, this guy is a nutter murderer and a power freak. He's crazy. And Daniel's in his service. Can you imagine some of the questions going around in Daniel's head as he's away from home and he's never going back in his mind? There is no home. (laughs) Can you imagine some of the questions? Like, is God's purpose in the world over? Is that game over for Israel? Is it game over for God's salvation plan for the rest of the world? This is Daniel asking questions in Babylon. (laughs) What about God? Because Babylon have a God too. And normally, if you win a battle, that means your God's the bigger God. So is Marduk, God of Babylon, the real God we should worship? Is there any value in trying to serve God now that everything seems to be over? Does our defeat imply God lost? Or does it imply that he hates us? Is it the end of the covenant? Is it the end of God's mission in the earth? Is it the end of the Torah, the law? Is it the end of the promises that he gave us that we were talking about a bit early? And we're faced with this dilemma. Do we, do we fight for our identity and get killed? <laughs> or do we conform and disappear? Do you get it? I really wanted to paint a bleak picture (laughs) because it doesn't get much bleaker than where Daniel was at in chapter one of Daniel. And guys, we will only understand the book when we engage on this level with this story, when we see it as the horrific mess that it is. And do you know what? I think that's actually a really helpful thing because I sometimes, well, I I know that we all do this and we were talking about situations earlier that just seem so massive. And we know there's millions of people who are fleeing their homeland right now. And they're thinking some of the same things as Daniel. Where's God? Is he even in charge? Does he even know what he's doing? Will I ever get to go home? Is everything that I've lived for lost? These are timely questions because they're questions that the world is always asking. And so the answers in Daniel and what we see happen in the book of Daniel isn't just cool because it's a nice story that happened then. It's amazing because these are answers that the world critically needs. Make sense? Great. Okay, where should we go now? Oh, gosh. Okay, we're going to skip about 15 of my slides. Uh, You don't need to know that. Uh, It's just, oh, no, interesting trivia. Um, No, not interesting. 
What I love about Daniel, as I've been looking at it this week, is that what we see in it is that this is not the end of God. It's not the end of his purposes. It's not the end of his promises. It's not the end of his, his work. The question, you know, about how, how is God going to deal with this? How is he going to save it? Is the questions that Daniel uh, seeks to completely address and what we see is that, <laughs> it's kind of ironic really, for hundreds of years, Israel had been in a position of power and had a monarchy and had a military, and how much did they influence the world? Not very much, because their holiness wasn't seen, it wasn't visible, in fact, it wasn't really present most of the time. But now... You've got just four young guys in the courts of a powerful king from a different culture with a completely different understanding of God. And all of a sudden, God's kingdom starts to get built in other nations. Isn't that incredible? Like, think back to Christendom. Like, the church had power in the West for a long time. Do you know, I think it didn't do that much good for the world. (laughs) Fair to say? We weren't very good at it. (laughs) We're not very good in a position of power. But I think something that we see in Daniel is that God loves to use people in weakness. God loves to use people in the minority. God loves to use people who win not by fighting military battles, but by living with uprightness and integrity. Not by winning political arguments but by prayer. What we see in the book of Daniel is Daniel and his friends who just say, we're just going to keep living for God in our context. And they see him move. In fact, they see him move so much that this evil nut job of a king gets pursued by God and has his life changed. Takes a while. (laughs) In fact, Nebuchadnezzar gets converted about four times because he needs that many uh, to, to really come to some kind of discipleship that's not nuts. And you see, actually, through these four little guys, the word about God gets spread around this whole Babylonian empire, and then the whole empire of the Medes and the Persians that comes later. And actually, their influence is massive, even though they're tiny. Do you know what? There's some patterns here that are critical in our reading of the whole rest of the Bible. Because actually, Jesus picks up a lot of the metaphors, a lot of the language of Daniel. Daniel talks about things like the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. And remember what Jesus said about himself? You'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. In other words, this isn't just an isolated story. This is a story that Jesus said. That's actually going to be something that defines the way I move. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? A lot of the kingdom of God language comes from Daniel. And, and Jesus, in fact, do you remember like the critical point of Jesus' life where he saved the whole world? Was he in a position of strength or in a position of weakness? As he stood before Pilate 
without any power and just surrendered himself to God. I think a lesson of Daniel is, my gosh, he moves in our weakness. A lesson of Daniel is, no matter what you see on the news, God is doing something. God is achieving something. I'm not saying that he's responsible for everything. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is he's always moving. He never stops. He is building his kingdom. And Daniel paints these pictures of these massive kingdoms who war against each other. And and particularly later on in Daniel, we hear prophecies of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And who's sandwiched in the middle is this little land of Judah. And, And the kings of the north are waging and the kings of the south are waging. And they always have power, but they also always have weakness. And at the end of the story, the kingdom of God is still there and still survives and actually is going to be the kingdom that takes over the whole world but it's not going to be through nebuchadnezzar type power it's going to be through peace it's going to be through love one peter as as jenny actually read a passage earlier from one peter do you remember how it talked about the church it says guys know your identity as strangers and exiles in the world today and then how does he tell them to live he says live rightly live justly because actually to some degree the the story of Daniel defines our story we too like Luke said earlier are a people who live in exile we are not home yet I feel like so much of the west and particularly the western evangelicalism wants to kind of control things again we want state power we want the right president I guess or the right prime minister and actually the kingdom of God is never about that. It's one when people like us surrender ourselves to God and say, I'd rather walk into the furnace than disown my God. Does that make sense? Revelation. Should we talk about Revelation for a while? (laughs) How many of you read Revelation? How many of you understood everything in it? Good news. Once we've read Daniel, you will understand everything in Revelation. Now, let's move on. Uh, but loads of the image from, from Revelation is uh, first comes up in Daniel, and we're going to look at some of the crazy bits at the end later that actually aren't as crazy as they seem. Yay! Well done. Uh, so you don't just have to read one to six for the rest of your lives and then get to seven and think, whoa, back up and go to a different book. Um, I know some of you do that. Great. Now, um, there's a lot of craziness in Daniel, like I said, and a lot of, uh, over time, um, people have, there's a lot of numbers and prophecies and things like that. Uh, don't worry, I think, uh, I think we're good. Um, <laughs> and uh, some people use Daniel in a kind of co-optive way to try and get people to think what they think or whatever. Um, this is a banner um, from familyradio.com that prophesied the end of the world on May the 21st, 2011. Do you remember that? Do you remember what you were doing on that day? It's because nothing happened. <laughs> but he got there by adding up what he thought was a right adding up of dates in Daniel. Now, people have been doing this for centuries. Don't do it. <laughs> Please, stop it. <laughs> um, if you do do it, there's love and there's grace, um, but no. Uh, incidentally, when it didn't happen on May the 21st, do you remember what he did? He was like, oh, 
I got it six months out. It's October 21st. And then uh, we had to wait another uh, five months to uh, see that he was wrong again. But I would agree with this guy here. Um, What is presented in the book of Daniel is not a precise prediction of the future of the world, but a philosophy of life, a worldview. This understanding, how do Christians relate to power? How do we deal with it when it looks like the purposes of God are failing? How do we stand firm when it feels like we're a tiny minority who are only going to survive maybe a few more little whiles? But actually there's a pattern here that God's kingdom is coming and he is moving and he is doing stuff and he is interested in us and he's interested in the great political leaders of our time. He's interested, I believe, in, in bringing, I think, I think it was Emma who was praying earlier, look, could you, like, that God would um, lead the ISIS leaders to Christ. I believe that he's interested in that. He's, he, he, God was pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. And there's patterns in this book that we all find tremendously useful for our lives. Where it ends is, is here. In the end of the book, after all's been said and done, and basically God's been a bit mean and sent an angel to Daniel that's told him so much information that makes no sense. Um, to Daniel. So Daniel's like, oh, what do I do with all these massive prophecies that you've just given me and these goats and these beasts and this beast with ten horns and one horn that grows up above all the other horns and speaks boastfully and then another four horns appear from that horn and then they're broken off but one of them remains. And uh, Daniel's like, a little help here? And God says basically this. (laughs) God says, you go about your business without fretting or worrying. Relax. When it's all over, you'll be on your feet to receive your reward. In other words, the key to Daniel is this. In the questions, just keep living for God. Just keep doing what we know to do. Just keep living righteously. For Daniel, just keep praying. Just keep seeking opportunities to talk about God. Just keep influencing where we are. Whether it's the height of a political kingdom like Daniel, wherever it is. How's that? More. <laughs> you've, got, you've got weeks and weeks of this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done, actually. Yeah, end of show. In fact, that's the way it puts it on my thing. I don't know if it was a show, but um, sh- can we pray? Because there's so much to pray for, isn't there? Oh, oh uh, Daniel's one of the only books in the Old Testament that's written in two different languages. Ooh, and um, they don't correspond with... with oh, I'll talk to you about it later. If you're interested, come and, up, come and talk to me. Uh, but yeah, basically, chapters, chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and then chapter 2 to 7 are in Aramaic. Funny. And then it goes back to Hebrew. But that doesn't correspond with the other neat dividing of the book that looks like 1 to 6 are one section, and 8 to 12, or 7 to 12 is a different section. Funny, huh? And 2 to 7 kind of have a pattern in their own right. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks, and and you'll see how this book kind of builds. Because, my gosh, I I mean, I I think I'd say this about whatever book of the Bible we were starting. But Daniel is one of those books that the more you get into it, the more it's like, oh, my gosh, God is amazing. And God is amazing. Um, And he's doing stuff. Good?